Please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Peter, the first one, or sometimes called one Peter. If you're using the Pew Bible, I encourage you to follow along as we carefully read God's Word in this beautiful letter. It can be found on page 953 in those black Bibles, and if you don't own a Bible, please take this as our gift to you. We would encourage you to not just read along today to follow along this message, but read throughout the week, day after day. Before I read the text, here's a question to get you thinking about how to apply and think through the topics that our passage addresses. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1, and we're going to read verses 6 to 9, but here's your question. If you could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what kind of value would you give that elixir? I didn't come up with that question. That is from an op-ed piece in the USA Today. It was published in 2016, and that's the opening line of an article that goes on to say the following. Let me take it one step further. If research quite conclusively showed that when consumed just once a week, this special concoction would reduce mortality rates by 20 to even 30% over a 15-year period. How urgently would we want that to be publicly available? It's fairly obvious, isn't it? Well, the author writes, good news. This miracle drug is already in reach of most Americans. In fact, there's a good chance it's a short drive away. It is regular church attendance. You can read the rest. I'll send you the link if you're really interested. They go on to explain their findings and the research and why those who attend church regularly live longer, healthier, you might even say happier lives. Well, let's see what God's Word has to say about these matters from 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 6, all the way to verse 9. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but God's word endures forever. Amen? 
big idea of today's message in one sentence. God's elect greatly rejoice even during the grief of exile because of the greatness of their salvation. God's elect greatly rejoice even during the grief of their exile because of the greatness of their salvation. Put that personal, though. For those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus, you are God's children, adopted into his family, chosen by God. I greatly rejoice, even during the grief of my exile, because of the greatness of my salvation. I believe this sentence summarizes our passage. And I think that if you can see him talking not just about God's elect 2,000 years ago and the various places of dispersion that you see in verse 1 of our letter, but about you, I think that it will be very, very useful. In fact, life-sustaining, life-changing. So let's break down that one sentence in each of its parts. And for those of you that are just looking for basic ways to study and read your Bible, let me just give you the the behind-the-scenes curtain look. I'm simply answering three questions I had about this passage. What is Peter saying? And the answer, I believe, is God's elect greatly rejoice. That's the answer to that question. What's he saying in these verses? God's elect greatly rejoice. Second, What's the context and situation for them greatly rejoicing? And the answer to question two is even during the grief experienced of exile. Question three, why? Why are God's elect having such great joy even during great grief? Answer, because of the greatness of their salvation. It's simple, isn't it? If you're wanting just basic Bible study skills and tools, ask just simple questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Think about it. Follow the logic. And this is my attempt to do that for you. First, what? What is Peter saying? I think Peter is saying in this text, God's elect greatly rejoice. The grammar here is incredibly important and powerful, so if you don't tune me out for the next minute or two, I think that you might have this moment of, wow, the Bible's cool. Here it is. Here's the question. What's Peter saying? Is Peter telling us what we should be doing? You should rejoice during trials? Or is he saying what we will do? You will one day rejoice after the trials are over and you're saved? Or is he saying what the elect exiles are doing right now? And all three grammatically, strangely enough, are possible. So this is one of the big debates by Bible exegetes and theologians trying to figure out what's Peter actually saying here. To say it another way, is he stating a fact about who these people are and what they're doing right now in the present? 
Or is he stating a command? This is what you need to do. Or this is a promise of what you will do. Which one is it? The three options. They're all legitimate in the Greek language. And so you have to think hard about how to answer this and translate it. As you can tell, the English Standard Version that's in front of you in the Black Bibles, the one I just read for you, it has chosen which of those three options? Now. Present. This is who you are. This is what you're doing. Not future, you will do it. Then you would say, in this, you will rejoice in the future. Or it would say, in this, you should rejoice. ESV gets it right. Peter is saying this is happening. God's chosen children are presently rejoicing and they're doing it a lot. Why do I say a lot? Why do I say great joy? Because notice the way that our passage, 6 to 9, are bookended by joy. In this you rejoice. And look at the way that verse 8 says, Though you have, you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy. That's a weird way to talk, isn't it? You rejoice with joy. What other way would you rejoice? Rejoice with stoic indifference? Rejoice with sadness? Rejoice with anger? Can you tell that he's wanting you to get the point? These people have great joy. In fact, he says another description of their joy. It is inexpressible. You rejoice with a joy that is I don't have words to even describe it. That's, that's pretty cool. That's good joy. Anybody want that? Sign me up. I want that kind of joy. That's what he's saying that these people have. Embassy Church, I want to declare something very similar. You have this too. This describes many of you. You have this joy because you have this salvation. But for now, I just want you to think about the significance of Peter saying this. And understand the power of the principle at play here. Why would we pick option one? Presently, he's stating this is the way things are instead of option two or three. And the answer I think that's best is the context of what he is doing in one long sentence. This is one long sentence, so... Look back at verses 3 to 5. Follow the flow from 3 to 5 into 6. And let's read it together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Do you notice that in verses 3, 4, and 5, there's no commands? He doesn't start, to all of these elect exiles dispersed in various places, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, here's my opening greeting. That's what John Pay preached two weeks ago. And then Ryan introduced to us to the beginning statement. And it's, it's praise, as Ryan said. It's doxology. Blessed be God. Because he has raised Jesus from the dead. He has done something. And in this, you rejoice. You, you, you do rejoice because that thing has already happened. He's not saying because of that, to rejoice. 
To further explain the point, if you were to say not just the grammar of the text, but the context of the flow, he's just talking about how good God is. Do you guys get that vibe when you read verses 3 to 9? If this is all one big sentence, is the vibe, here's a list of commands I have for you. He's going to get there, by the way. Hold on. He's going to get there. He's going to command things. Be holy as God is holy. Live out your exile in a certain way. Husbands, wives, he's going to have instructions for you. Those submitting to their masters, he's got all kinds of commands. But at this point in the letter, he is just telling you the greatness of God. And in fact, go reread the rest of your New Testament and ask yourself how many times do the New Testament authors begin with beautiful, doxological, glorious sentences with praise about who God is and who God's people are. Not commands yet, let's just remind ourselves and set the story straight. This is who you are on the basis of who God is. It's called the indicative in Greek. It means that there's a way of communicating where you're not trying to get somebody to do something, but you're trying to tell them a fact about reality. That's what's happening in verses three through nine. So let me try and say it in a few different ways to see if you get the basic big takeaway from point one. Peter's not telling you what to do. He's not telling you what you will do. He's telling you, this is what Christians are like. Indicatives are the ground for future imperatives in Christian writing. Now, if that sentence was a little confusing, I'm going to say the same thing again various ways. So hopefully we'll all, at the end, be on board. Indicatives are the grounds for imperatives. Say it another way, Pastor Phil. Okay. Christian doctrine comes first, then faithful Christian living. Or say it another way. Correct beliefs produce correct behavior. What God has done determines the people we are and the things we should do. God does, therefore I do. And that order is important. Or my favorite way to say it, because it rhymes, the gospel is the root, your obedience should be the fruit. We're still in the root section of laying out what God has done. This is the foundation before he says anything else. Do you understand why this is relevant? Like for your personal life, your theological formation, your just well-being. Could you imagine if week after week after week you came to a church that believed these basic fundamental principles of communication? The gospel is foundational. God has done something in the person of Jesus Christ for you in your place and on the basis of his incredible great mercy, verse 3 says, because of the power of the resurrection that is in this inheritance in heaven. On the basis of those things, we are joyful people that then he'll get to live a certain way. But we haven't even got to the living part. He's still talking about the God part. This is who God is. And on the basis of that, this is who you are. You're people that rejoice even in the midst of trials. Friend or visitor, if we've not met yet and you're your first time here at Embassy, I would love to make it clear to you that more than anything, we would want you to understand the gospel because it's the root. We'd want you to understand what it means to become a Christian 
And very simply, we would say that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And even though you've not seen him, you can trust him and believe in him like our text says. But you must first understand that you've sinned against him. That you have not lived like you should. And until you can receive the greatness of God's love and salvation for you, you need to first come to terms with your own failures, your own weaknesses, your need for Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? You need saving? Today could be a good day to start really seriously thinking about the fact that you need a Savior. The good news of 1 Peter is that that Savior is Jesus Christ, and his salvation is not, eh, take it or leave it. It's great. It's really good news. The God of the universe that you sinned against, he decided that instead of making you pay for your sins, he paid for them himself by dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And then, to demonstrate his absolute victory over sin and death, he was buried in the ground, he rose again from the dead, and now our inheritance is kept in heaven forever because Jesus Christ, our ascended king, reigns. We have a living hope. And this is the reason why Christians have joy. And I believe this is the reason why regular church attenders, especially those that hear this message regularly, they live longer. Because hope gives life. And the gospel is the foundational seed for all hope, period. Do you know the gospel? Fellow church member, you've heard the gospel a thousand times. Do you need to hear the gospel again today? Yes, I do, Pastor Phil. Well, praise the Lord. The gospel is right here in our text. I don't need to smuggle it in. That's the basis of all that's being talked about in 1 Peter. Now, if any of you are here today and you're a child of one of our church members, children, anyone under the age of 18, especially those of you that have pretty much grown up going to church your whole life, I especially want you to start thinking about how it's very easy to mimic the behavior of your parents or the Christians you see around you, but there's a difference between mimicking behavior and doing things on the basis of the gospel. You should really make sure you think about that, and if you have questions about that, talk to your mom and dad. Talk to maybe one of the other youth leaders. Attend some of our youth gatherings in the future so that you can think through how the gospel changes people's lives. And it's not about trying to live a certain way so that then God will be happy with you, but receiving his happiness because of the way that he has taken away your sins on the cross. So many times we've heard testimonies of people that are getting baptized in our church, or even this morning joining our church for membership, and they grew up going to church, and then they said, you know, I really didn't believe the gospel. My life did not demonstrate fruit of obedience. I said a prayer one day. I even got baptized at my church. But true saving faith wasn't demonstrated in my actions. Praise God that so many people have in various ways, whether in college or later on in life, heard the gospel and then realized that just going to church and even praying a prayer one time or even sometimes getting baptized these things are not necessary assurances of you being saved. Rather, a faithful understanding that you love God because he loves you in Christ and that that changes you where you are a kind of person like Peter's describing here. Joy. Not just any joy. Joy inexpressible. Great joy. Kids, you might be in various places in your life. Adults, we are in various places and this text can be convicting even though it's not a command. It's supposed to, I think, be an encouragement. 
But when we see the truth about this is what Christians should be like, sometimes it is convicting. Oh, that's, that's not what I'm like. I, I don't know that joy. I've never known that joy. That's a great thing to sit down and talk with someone about. But many of you, I do think, understand that this is, in fact, your reality. The gospel is such good news that Christ died for you, that it has given you joy, great, great joy. Without naming names, let me just illustrate the point. Last week in this room, one of our church members was informed right before church started that someone dear to them had died. And Ryan came up here and preached, brothers and sisters, blessed be God our Father. We should praise God in season and out of season, good times and bad times. And this church member continued coming to church. Bad news, really sorrowful grief in their heart, and then they came and worshipped. God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How encouraging is it that in your midst are people that are actually living like this text says? This is not some fairy tale. This is not abstract kind of cool idealism. This is real. This is the experience I have walking with you as your pastor. We, members of Embassy Church, we have great joy. This is what we do. This is who we are. And sometimes we fail, and that's why we need to confess our sins. But isn't it very good to be reminded that this is, in fact, your truest identity? Chosen, elect. And doesn't that bring you great joy to know that nothing can take that away? Not even the worst that the world can throw at us. Because that's our second point. Even in the face of the most difficult trials, we rejoice. That's point two. Even during, specifically, our text says grief. And I say exile because that's what the introduction of 1 Peter says. They are elect exiles of the dispersia. And go back to John's message and hear the context of who he's talking to. So these people... But he says, you rejoice are elect exiles that have joy even in the times of greatest trial and struggle. And at this point, I think we should just make sure we understand the grief, the reasons for it, the lessons we can learn from it. So first, lesson number one about grief. Joy in the midst of grief, lesson one. This grief specifically, I believe, is more about emotional grief than physical pain, which is why I think our translation gets it right. Sometimes the translations say suffering, which is fine, but that's a bit broad. Suffering can be bodily suffering, physical suffering, or emotional suffering. And as Karen Jobes rightly says, the suffering that Peter describes here could also be translated distressed because it's not primarily a word used to describe physical suffering, but mostly mental distress or emotional suffering. And here again, Karen Jobes quoting her, she says, it is used in extra-biblical literature regularly to refer to the emotional response when somebody loses some great financial loss, when they're being harassed by annoying neighbors, or the emotions or pain and sorrow from the trials of life. Brothers and sisters, Christians, elect exiles, do you know this grief? This grief is emotional, mental difficulty. And today, we live in a day that is especially talking about mental health. 
I feel like increasingly in the last few years and months, mental health awareness. I was uh, back in like 2015 or 16, Barack Obama, he named May the Mental Health Awareness Month. Everybody needs to be aware. We're, we're diminishing mental health. We need to bring it to the forefront and realize people have mental health crises. This text is talking about mental suffering. And if you read through 1 Peter carefully, you'll notice that the precise kind of suffering that they're experiencing is often related to harassment and insult. Read through the letter again and again, and you'll notice that these elect exiles are being harassed and insulted for doing what is right and good to obey Jesus. There's the context of the suffering. So, lesson one, realize that the Bible is not indifferent or absent in the topic of mental and emotional health. This kind of grief is that kind of grief. Now, it could include bodily suffering, but as I was reading through this topic, I think that it's the fear of what might happen to me because I'm following Jesus. The stress, the worry, the anxiety. That's what Peter's referring to. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. Read carefully with me verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, a little while. Lesson two, no matter how bad your trial, it won't last forever. It might last on earth a really long time, but the perspective here is about your eternal salvation and the saving that God's gonna do at the end, and then you can know every tear wiped away, every grief and hurt in your heart healed by heaven. So, first, the Bible acknowledges your emotional hurt and pain and suffering, especially if it's the kind of hurt that is the result of following Jesus faithfully. Secondly, the Bible says it doesn't last forever. Thirdly, read verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. What? Does that mean? If necessary, well, what's the assumption? You will not receive any trial unless God allowed it to happen. In fact, turn with me quickly to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and you will see this point explicitly. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're told that suffering and the difficulties that these Christians are experiencing is because of God's sovereign will. It's part of the broader plan and the mystery of that plan. Starting in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, glory, let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those 
who do not obey the gospel of God. I think one of the things we get as we read through 1 Peter is a theology of God's allowing suffering to exist in our lives for, as verse 12 says of 1 Peter 4, a test. But the clearest explanation of God's allowing this is in chapter 3, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I mean, that's about as explicit as I think a, a statement could be. If it is God's will, meaning that the suffering you will experience as a Christian in your life from here until glory is necessary suffering that has been allowed by the will of God for the sake of your maturity, perseverance, and testing. Listen to verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, implying that your suffering is in fact necessary by the will of God, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lesson number one. The Bible knows about your mental and emotional suffering. It talks about it, especially those that are being persecuted and insulted for their faith. Lesson two, it won't last forever. The righteous judge will come down and bring about vindication and judgment and make all things right. It won't last forever, no matter how long it lasts on earth. A little while. A little while compared to eternity. Lesson three, it's necessary sometimes. The sovereign God has a purpose for it, to test the genuineness of your faith. If God didn't have the purpose of making you stronger through the suffering, then who's the one that's doing that? Satan? Satan's trying to attack you with insults so that your faith gets stronger? See, that doesn't make much sense. The necessary nature of suffering means that it has a purpose. Are these lessons helpful? The Bible talks about emotional, mental health problems, suffering, distress, stress, anxiety, grief. It's a broad word, but it's referring to that concept, especially facing persecution, and that God has allowed it for a little while for your good. And he wouldn't have allowed it if it wasn't for your good. I think these, these principles are really helpful for us to understand this big idea. God's people... The elect exiles, they rejoice, they greatly rejoice, even in the midst of trials. Why? That's answer number three. Why? Because of the greatness of their salvation. The greatness of their salvation, which explains to us the problem of evil being solved at the cross, the problem of suffering, the problem of sin, all of it being wrapped up in this moment of the person, work, life, death of Jesus. The salvation of our souls. That's the reason we can rejoice. Do you think that you would do better with your suffering if you knew it was only going to last a little while, especially relative to eternity, and that it's not going to be thrown away and wasted? Would that be helpful to keep going forward? You know, I was on a long plane ride. I had a two-year-old with me just recently, flying back from Dubai. You know what helps? It's only a little while. It's only a little while, and it has a purpose. 
I'm not just dealing with an antsy two-year-old and trying to keep her in her seat and not bothering other people and whatever else and all the feelings that go on with it just because. There's purpose to it. And when you know it's not going to last forever and you know there's purpose, I think that brings hope. To illustrate this point, Viktor Frankl, the former Jewish doctor that was in the concentration camps and wrote this amazing memoir about people who suffered next to him in concentration camps. He has these very poignant comments about how, as a physician, he saw people's physical and mental and emotional well-being languish as they had no hope. In other words, some of the people that died in the concentration camps died because they had no hope. They didn't even want to eat anymore. They didn't want to get up and exercise anymore. They just sat and laid and did nothing. And because there was no hope, they died. Physically, they died. That point is true today, right now, in this room. Your physical, emotional, and mental well-being, I think, will turn on the strength of your hope in the gospel. But I've got better news than you might living 25 or 30% longer over the next 15 years just by attending church. Although, that's, that's good news. That's a special elixir, isn't it? The salvation of your souls. That's even better. The resurrection from the dead is the inheritance that we will have. Jesus, the one who has risen and reigns in heaven and has secured for us with his mighty power our future inheritance. What's that? Salvation. Salvation of not your spiritual soul. Look at the end of verse 9. It says the, the salvation of our souls. That's not talking just about your inner person. It's typically referring to this word that's your whole being. You'll be saved. You'll be saved at the end day. Even though you can't see Jesus, you love him. Even though you don't know all of the reasons and the purposes that God has for your suffering, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory because through this process, even now, not just in the future, even now, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the end goal of your faith, which is salvation. Even now, you're living longer because you're here today. But even when you die, that hope and that faith and that love in Christ will bring you back from the dead and you will live forever and ever. That's the good news of the gospel. That's salvation. Not just a hope of what happens to me when I die, but what happens to me with my soul after I die, that God will reunite my soul with my body and we will live in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope because of, through what? The resurrection of Jesus. I have a sense that if you go around your life and you hear that there is mental health awareness in the month of May, or you see another ad about why we should become more aware about mental health and this and that, more often than not, you're not going to be instructed to go to church. But here you are today, praise the Lord. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Not just on Sundays, but in the day-to-day -day fight for hope so you stay alive, literally, in this earth, but so that you live forever in eternity. 
This is our great hope and our great salvation. Our joy and our faith is better than any gold or dollar amount that you could have in your bank account. More precious than anything that this world has to offer is the security of the hope that when even you breathe your last. That's not the end of the story. So, brothers and sisters, be faithful in perseverance in your weekly attendance in the Sunday gathering. Be faithful in your perseverance of reaching out to one another when they're dealing with sorrows that are great. Our text says that there are various kinds of trials. It's not just one. It's not just persecution necessarily, but there's various trials that this room is comprised of. We should empathize with the fact that the Bible names it, points to it, and then says, here's how to have joy, not just any joy, great joy. And then, remember, this is not just something to strive for. This is who you are. So the encouragement is not so much about doing it, but embracing, receiving, knowing. This is the body of Christ. You will continually become more this person the more that this hope saturates your soul, saving it now and especially in the future. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross, suffered in our place, and experienced physical suffering, but especially insults, mental and emotional suffering. What we see in our text about elect exiles necessarily suffering, we could say even greater about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was necessary for him to suffer, and he was happy to do it for the joy set before him. The joy of seeing us have an inexpressible joy even in the face of the greatest trials we face. So we want to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to live out the reality of who we are by receiving today. That the emphasis would be on the indicative, on the done, on the finished work of Jesus, not so much the, the things that we need to do. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be such sweet mercy and grace that's flowing from heaven down into this room and encouraging souls with hope that even if they didn't want to come to church today, they're here and they're hearing that you love them. And because of your great love for them, they love you. Oh, God, we pray that you would take whatever faith we have, small or great, and use it to encourage us for another day, another hour, and do it week after week after week until you take us home or until finally you return and make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.